us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. And uh, we, as we've sang uh, uh, in the gym and in this room, uh, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. And I, I, I thank you for people who are uh, faithful unto the Lord, even when darkness seems to hide your lovely face. They, they trust you. They walk in obedience. There are people here today who are just, they're troubled, they're heartbroken. Meet them, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Others are celebrating. They recently had an accomplishment. They're going to a, a different plateau in their life. Uh, meet, meet them, Lord, and show them uh, that unless you build the house, they labor in vain. So we ask now you take the Word of God and open it to our understanding Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been discussing this issue of a call to biblical clarity that leads to unity in the body of Christ, which leads to a life of charity in the world around us. And we've been studying Romans chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul is making an application of the first 11 chapters. And he says, I therefore beseech you or plead with you or implore you or beg you by the tender mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, so he says, based upon what you've heard in Romans 1 through 11 about the glory of the cross and the wonder of all that Christ has done for us, but based upon that, be involved in spiritual worship. And the way you maintain spiritual worship is that you're not conformed to this world. And the way you're not conformed to this world is that you're transformed in the renewing of your mind. You have mind transformation as you understand, grapple with, apply, love, understand the tender mercies of God. And as you do that, as a body of people, you will be able to test and discern through the Bible study, through prayer, through fellowship, the community of the, the saints, you'll be able to test and discern the will of God that is good or beneficial, that is acceptable or pleasing, and that is perfect or leads to maturation. So clarity. And then he talks about how to walk. And in verse 3, he gives us the building block for family in the Lord, the building block for churches, the building block for relationships. And this verse just flies in the face of everything that the majority of the people in our culture believe. It's a wild verse. He says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. But, but I say, says, as an apostle, I say by the grace given to me, to everyone among you, not to just a few people, but to everybody in the, in the church at Rome, to all of us today, don't think of yourself too highly, but think of yourself with a sober judgment. 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him, or each according to his level of maturity, where he is in the Lord, his giftedness spiritually, the way he's developed that. But all of you, don't think too highly, but think of yourself with a sober judgment. Now, now listen, this flies in the face of, of everything that we're taught, this, this call to humility. Now, there are people run around today like, like Tony Robbins, who's been very popular, Deepak Chopra, uh, Dr. Oz, Oprah Winfrey. All these people would, would sit back and say, what are you talking about? And then when you look at things like the self-affirmation school and William James, the brilliant professor at Harvard, or uh, Viktor Frankl, or Carl Jung, these people say, what are you talking about? What do you mean, Paul? I mean, that, that the basic building block for fellowship in the body of Christ, the basic building block for relationship is, is, is not to think of yourself too highly, but to think of yourself with a sober judgment? What do you mean? Let me read from John Calvin. This is the first volume of the Institutes, just two volumes. And Calvin writes this. This is just the very first chapter. So out of the blocks, this is what Calvin says. He died in 1564. So he said this. Without, he says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He says, each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. So, so you see, you see how, how do we pray for our children or one another? Pray that we'd be stung by unhappiness in ourselves. Have you ever had anybody say, why can't I pray for you? Pray that I'll be stung by unhappiness. I don't think that's not, but that's what we need. And he says this. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God, and we cannot seriously aspire to Him before we begin to be displeased with ourselves. For what man in all the world would not gladly remain as he is, what man does not remain as he is, so long as he does not know himself? That is, while content with his own gifts and either ignorant or unmindful of his own misery. Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as a word, leads us by the hand to find him. The knowledge of ourselves and our fallenness and our, 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 our lack of conformity to the image of God and our secret thoughts leads us to pursue the one who is gloriously good. So, so this whole issue of, 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 of a call to humility is grounded in the glory and goodness and majesty of all that Christ is for us. Now, there's a movie called The Wizard of Oz. Very famous. Most, most of us have seen it numerous times. When I was a child, I watched it once a year. It was on TV once a year, and I'd watch it. Dorothy Toto leaves Kansas, goes to the magic land of Oz, wants to go to the great wizard. She meets the great wizard, his huge face full of anger and callousness. And the little, her little dog Toto jumps out of her arms and pulls back the curtain. And really the Oz, the picture of the man from the Wizard of Oz is really a, a guy that's orchestrating the whole thing. And he says time after time, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And, and really, 
It says, pay attention to the great and terrible Oz, not the man behind the curtain. And that's an example of image management. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Just look at the image I am projecting. So my, my question is, what do you do with your failures and your shame? What do you do with your inconsistencies, your sin? What do you do? See, that's what Calvin means. We will never see God until we truly know ourselves and our need of Him. So two considerations here. Number one, when you see the glory of the cross, it, it makes you preach Christ and not yourself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is talking about the freedom that is ours in Christ, about when Christ is preached, the veil is dropped in our understanding regarding the character of God. We see Him for all that He is and all of His glory. And he says this in verse 6, he says, for God who said that light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Based upon that, he says, verse 5, the preceding verse, he says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He says, you know, when you, when you see the light of Christ, the glory of the living God in the face of Jesus, you want to preach him, not yourself. And then he says, and also, gladly, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. He says, I'm just a jar of clay, he says. A broken jar of clay, no big deal, but I've got Jesus. And, and so the, the, the key to all of this is, is, is to understand the glory of the cross. Secondly, humility does not mean silence when you're called to speak. Now, let me explain that. Sometimes people are asking a question, they say him and they ha and they don't answer. They say, well, I don't know. And they say, isn't he humble? Let me say, humility does not mean that we don't speak up. Um, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to a, a rather shy preacher, and he says this to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 11. Listen, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but be an example of the believers in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public teaching of Scripture and to exhortation, which means to challenge, and to the teaching. So, so he, says, he says, Timothy, he says, hear me, young man. He says, hear me. He says, he says be an example of the believers in, in your speech and your conduct and your faith and your love and your purity. But Timothy, command these things. Publicly teach and preach. Don't hold back. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul says in chapter 4, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and, and careful instruction. So you lay it out. There's a man named G.K. Chesterton. He died in 1936. He was a Brit. And he said this in the 1920s. He says, but, but what we suffer from today is humility in all the wrong places. This is 1936. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does not assert is exactly the part that he ought not to assert himself. The part that he doubts is exactly the part 
that he ought not to doubt the divine reason or wisdom from God. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Chesterton says, what we were not supposed to doubt, divine wisdom, we now do not speak of, and what we were meant to be modest about ourselves, we gladly speak about time after time after time. So I say, be people of conviction who speak with gentleness and brokenness, but you speak. For example, this past week, uh, there was an obituary in the New York Times. Happy Rockefeller died, the widow of Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller was a four-term governor of New York. Uh, In 1963, he was the prohibitive favorite to be the standard bearer for the Republican Party in the 1964 general elections. Uh, he was, had a string of Republicans lined up to support him in his run. And in that year, uh, Nelson Rockefeller left his wife of 31 years and his five children, and he married a woman who was 18 years younger than him, a very wealthy woman who had left her husband and her four children and had become his mistress. And she signed over her four children to her husband. And her husband, she just, I give you full rights. And... Uh, it created quite a stir, and because of that, Rockefeller's candidacy plummeted, and a guy from Arizona named Barry Goldwater became the standard bearer in 1964. But what's interesting is, is during this whole issue, one of Rockefeller's closest friends that he had known for years and years and years, a former senator from Connecticut, made this public statement. This is one of his friends. He says, have we come to the point where a governor can desert his wife and children and persuade a young woman to abandon her four children and her husband? Have we come to the point where one of the two great parties will confer its greatest honor on such a one? I venture to hope not, close quote. And that comment was made by a guy named Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush and the granddad of George W. Bush. I read that in the New York Times, and I went, what would happen today? And there may be a public outcry about a wife abandoning her children, kind of, sort of, and a man abandoning his wife of 31 years. But can you imagine a senator or a former senator making that statement without being vilified and held up for ridicule uh, today? I, I can't. What I'm saying, as things slip, we don't change. Now, Prescott Bush is here just, is just speaking biblical truth. I mean, no, but just truth. So, so modesty or humility does not mean that we don't speak. So, so listen to these two quotes about humility. The guy named Augustine died in 430, said this, Humility is the foundation of all other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except a mere appearance. <clears throat> Strong comment. No, no humility, says no Christian virtues. He says, later, should you ask me what the first thing in religion is, I should reply that the first, second, and third thing is humility. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful little chapter on pride in mere Christianity. It's a great eight, eight, eight pages. It's very readable. You ought to get it. This is what he says. Let me just read the paragraph. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all the others are mere flea bites 
in comparison. You just see that they're, they're flea bites. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. The devil is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-control provided all the time. He is setting you up in the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be quite content to see you have a skin rash if he were allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, of contentment, or even common sense. And pride, he says, is rejoicing that you are better than or better looking, smarter, more financially secure than X, Y, and Z. And you become arrogant. And so Paul says that the key to relationship, the key to the church, unity, is not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think of yourself with sober judgment. So let me mention a few things. First of all, just as an aside, today is Memorial Day, and we're and just if you're not an American, please forgive me. I'm just glad to be an American. I'm glad to be in this country. I, there was a man named Stephen Ambrose who I've read for several years, a great historian who died just a few years ago. He was the consultant for the movie Band of Brothers, the greatest movie ever made. Uh, it's a photo finish with a brave heart, but it is good stuff. And Stephen Ambrose wrote about World War II. He said, in the aftermath of World War II, when the people being occupied saw the Soviet soldiers that meant rape, pillage, destruction, and theft. When the occupied people saw the American GI, it meant candy, chewing gum, and cigarettes, and protection. And when he was, that, that one short paragraph made me stop and say, I'm glad to be an American. So forgive me for that. But as I thought about this, this issue of, of, of the, Lord's, the, the Lord's goodness, three things. Number, number one, humility is not attained directly, but it's the overflow of worship. See, if you were to say, I'm going to be more humble this week, I don't think that's the way you get there, biblically speaking. You get there as your mind is filled with the knowledge of the tender mercies of God. See? <clears throat> you, you, you grapple with the, the tender mercies of God. What has God done for me in the glory of the cross, in the power and the majesty of Jesus applied by the Spirit of the living God? The same Christ who is now interceding for me in heaven, Romans 8. The Holy Spirit who teaches me to cry out, Abba, Father. <clears throat> so I fill my mind with the greatness and goodness and majesty of God. So, so, so humility, please understand. Tender mercies of God. Spiritual worship. Not conformed. Transformed. Understand, discern the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. Therefore, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with a sober judgment. It is all a reflection of what Paul has been talking about. I want you to get that. Now, the Book of Common Prayer, Anglican Worship Guide, every Lord's Day, the, the, supposedly, when the Anglican Church meets, they start off with a litany. And it, there's a pattern here. I think you'll pick it up pretty quickly. The pastor says, <clears throat> Oh God, the Father of of heaven, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. The congregation says, O God, the Father of heaven, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. 
Pastor, O oh God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. Congregation, O oh God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. The Pastor, O oh God, the Holy Ghost, proceeding from the Father and the Son, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. Okay. And the congregation says, O oh God, the Holy Ghost, proceeding from the Father and the Son, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. The pastor says, O oh, blessed, holy, and glorious Trinity, three persons and one God, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. You got it. And the congregation says, O oh, holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons and one God, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. That's beautiful. That's biblical. So there's a guy named Winston Churchill. He was an Anglican. Went to Anglican worship. One day, Churchill got into a peevish spirit with his valet. And his valet kind of forgot his place and said, Mr. Churchill, may I remind you that we are all miserable sinners, okay? We are worms, sir. And Churchill stopped, and he said, you're right. We are miserable sinners, and we are worms, but I am a glow worm. Well, see, so you can say I'm a miserable sinner if you think, but eh, not really. I'm miserable, but they are really miserable. I've got some misery, but they are really, eh. See, see humility is the overflow of the worship of Christ. Number two, humility means there's knowledge of the gospel of grace. That's what Paul's been hammering out in Romans 1 through 11. So let me just read a few passages on the gospel of grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and come short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So you're justified, declared righteous by God's grace as a gift. It's nothing you can do. And then he gets into the mystery of the application of the gospel. And you go, wow. And in chapter 9, verse 16, he says this. He says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory. I don't understand this, but it says that salvation is of the Lord, that God works in your heart by the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see the beauty of the cross. And that's why many of us sang many years ago when we were younger, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after your will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Lord, you got to work. 
You've got to work. And he says in chapter 11, verses 17 and following, he says, but if some of the branches, the Old Testament people, the Old Covenant, were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, the olive tree being Jesus, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. <laughs> then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. So, see, to me, this humility comes in knowing the gospel of grace. Now, there are two types of people, and the, the first type of people is the people that believe in the moral perfection axiom, and they just try harder. They say, I obey, therefore, maybe, maybe, maybe God loves me. That's the way every world religion is. I obey, I, I work hard, I, I do this, I do that, I do Ramadan, I do whatever. Therefore, maybe God will somehow embrace me or love me. So I just work and work and work. There's no peace in that. There's no joy in that. There's no hope in that. There's no assurance in that. It is a terrible way to live. The gospel of grace says, I'm eternally loved by Abba Father, applied to me because of the work of the cross, made real to me by the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I am loved, therefore I joyfully, with gladness and freedom, obey. There's joy in that. There's hope in that. There's assurance in that. There's purpose in that. That is the gospel. And I, I want you, I want me to know that, to glory in that. That's what Paul is saying. I beseech you, brothers, by the tender mercies of God, present your bodies, present your minds, present everything you are, a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. That is your joyful spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the world. <laughs> be transformed. Renewing of your mind. So, so this is a Bad illustration, kind of, sort of, kind of gets there. World War II. If you are fighting the Soviet army and you are captured and you're a POW and the war is over and your country has lost 20 to 23 million people and you go home, hopefully, to the embrace of your country and your family, you are taken and put on a train and sent to Siberia for 10 or 15 years because you surrendered. Some people were just shot in their tracks by good old Joe Stalin who made Hitler look like a nice guy. Shot. If you're in the Imperial Army of Japan in World War II and you surrender, it is the highest point of degradation. You never surrender. And so if you go home, you'll, be, you'll go home to the disapproval of many of your countrymen. If you are a Brit or you're an American and you're a POW, you go home to a hero's welcome as you should. And I look at that and I think about our view of 
of God. This is a bad illustration. See, some of you think that God is kind of like Joe Stalin. He's going to do you in. But he's Abba Father. He welcomes people. He welcomes people. He doesn't ship you off. He's a welcoming God. So this, this controversy is as old as the 4th century. There's a guy named Pelagius who is a British monk. And Pelagius looked at the scripture and he said, you know, what we need is really not grace, but we need moral perfection. And the cross is good, is glorious for those who cannot do it on their own, but really we just need a self-improvement plan. And when you're named Pelagius, you should hear a bell tolling in the midnight. You ought to hear dogs barking. You ought to hear people moaning with disease because that is not the gospel. But he had a contemporary named Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine spoke valiantly for the gospel. And he says, no, we need the gospel of grace from A to Z. The only way we'll ever come to God is because God is gracious and loving, and he reaches out and embraces us in. And whenever you hear Augustine's name, you should hear marching bands and see confetti falling and understand there's free food at halftime with cat hats that say, go, Augustine, go, given to everybody. Because that is the gospel of grace. The third point is that the holy or, or humility comes through self-knowledge and Christ exaltation. Listen to me. If you were to go out today and find somebody that you think is humble and they know Jesus and you say to them, thank you for being humble, they may go, oh, just uh, don't, don't say anything to me. You know, like Lewis said, if you meet a humble guy, he won't necessarily come across as being somebody who is self-effacing. He'll just be interested in you. But you say to them, you're, you're humble. They say, well, let's change the subject. What they're really thinking is this. If you could see inside of my heart, you would not say I'm humble. Because we all have mixed motivations. We all have secret thoughts. We, we all have issues that cause us to blush. Either it comes from our flesh or the devil, but they're there. Alexander Wythe, a preacher in Scotland, preached one Sunday, and after the service, a very well-meaning person came up and said, Oh, Brother Wythe, that's the best sermon I've ever heard in all my life. Thanks be to God. And Wythe said, Madam, if you could see into the recesses of my heart, you would spit in my face. That's one way to stop the conversation. <laughs> if only you knew. A.W. Tozer was a well-known devotional writer, Christian Missionary Alliance, wonderful man. Very popular in the 50s. Spoke at Bible conferences, and one day he spoke at a Bible conference, and somebody gave him an incredibly overflowing, way over the top introduction. And Tozer came to the microphone and said, let us pray. And says, Lord, forgive my brother for that introduction. And Father, forgive me for enjoying it so much. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that, you see. Um, so, so there's a little, I put this in the bulletin, just three questions to think about. Number one, do church, do you really understand 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, that in due season he may exalt you. Do I understand Isaiah 66, verse 2, that says, 
To this man I will look to a man who trembles at my word. Do I tremble at the word of God? 30, am I, am I correctable? With your spouse or kids or friends, are you correctable? I, it's, hard, it's, it's hard. The, the Bible says, do not, in Proverbs 9, verse 8, do not correct a mocker. He will hate you. Correct a wise man. He'll love you. He'll love you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Hmm? Do I intentionally seek out Hebrews 3.12 friendships that says, uh, see to it that, that, that you, your heart doesn't grow hardened by, by unbelief? Do you seek out friends like that who just speak to your life? See, over, worship is the overflow of knowing the glory of the cross and our need. Worship, humility is the overflow of worship. Here's a little book in the Chronicles of Narnia called Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis. Of course, there are allegorical statements about heaven and eternal things. Aslan represents Christ. Children are mysteriously taken from England and sent back into this magic land of Narnia. Then in Prince Caspian, there is a prince whose name is Caspian who's going to be the king. And that towards the end of the book, Aslan has a coronation service for kings and queens. And Aslan said, Arise, kings and queens of Narnia. Edmund, Peter, and Susan from England stood up. But Caspian stayed low, his head bowed, still upon one knee. Then Aslan said, No, all of you rise including you, Caspian. And Caspian, with his head bowed, said, Aslan, I do not think I am ready. And Aslan said this, Caspian, it's for that very reason I know that you are. See? You're a great church. You really are. You're so kind to me, and I I thank you for men and women who walk in humility. And I really believe that humility is the overflow of worship. I believe good marriages are the overflow of worship. I believe tender relationships with kids is the overflow of worship. I beseech you, brothers, by the tender mercies of God to present all of yourselves to the to the living God is your act of spiritual worship. Don't think of yourself too highly, but think of yourself with a sober judgment. Each according to the faith, the maturation that God has assigned him. We'll stand and close in prayer, okay? Almighty God, our Father, Abba Father, Abba Father because of the cross, applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Uh, teach us, Lord, to walk in the way of the Lord. I, I just pray that our days will be marked with singing and laughter and purpose and joy and self-forgetfulness because we stand 
uh, at the foot of the cross. I pray our, our, our days will be marked by a sense of uh, purpose because we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, Lord, help us to be aware that the devil, I think Lewis is right, that the devil would be very glad for us to be involved in a self-improvement scheme that made us look good so long as we forget the glory of the cross. God forbid, as Paul says, may God forbid that I should ever boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ to which the world has been crucified and me and out of the world. God forbid, God forbid, God forbid. So shine brightly in our hearts as we worship you. Work in us. Well, we, we pray as a church for next week that it would be a time of information gathering and joy and celebration. Pray you show us what it means to go forward to impact this culture and this world with the good news of Christ. Let us live with a spirit of pressing into the wind and a spirit of trust in a God who is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So blessed be your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray for our country during these days. We thank you for the sacrifice of so many men and women. We thank you for the, the way this, this nation has really stood for uh, justice um, in so, so many areas of conflict. And, and Lord, keep us, keep us humble and let us go back to our heritage let us go back to belief in the living God. Use your church to be a minority that speaks with grace and dignity in Jesus' name. Amen.